Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And this episode starts off in one of my favorite ways, with the mysterious, unidentified head. <laughs> or skull, rather. It is a good way to start a podcast. We've done it a few times, but it's always a classic intro. So here's how this story starts. In 2009, a West Australian farmer named Tom Baxter turned in a skull to the authorities, claiming that it's the skull of Ned Kelly, a famous bushranger or bandit who was executed back in the 1800s. His body was believed to be buried in a mass grave, but for decades, Kelly's skull lived in a display case in Melbourne jail. Until, that is, it was stolen in 1978. So nobody has really known where the skull or the head was since then. It's been a mystery. And Baxter didn't really help illuminate that question very much. He refuses to say how he got the skull or if he was involved in its theft, which is kind of sketchy if you think about it. Yeah, I wonder if there will be more details on that aspect of it in the future. But as far as we know right now, researchers haven't positively identified the head as Ned's. In 2010, they issued kind of a request for help. They had sort of reached to the end of the road and as far as they could go in testing things and they asked people to turn in any information that they know, any stories, any photographs and at least one man according to a story in August 2010 has come forward with a tooth that he believes belongs to the skull. So a tooth that had been handed down through his family as a souvenir of some sort. of Ned Kelly. Exactly. And he has given it to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, where, which is the body that's conducting the research. And so body. we'll see what happens with that. <laughs> I know. Very funny. <laughs> so there's been that renewed interest in Kelly, but really he's never really gone away from the Australian collective consciousness. He's been the celebrated outlaw, the subject of many songs, books and films over the years. And some even think of him as a national folk hero. There are others, though, who consider him just as a ruthless criminal, a villain. So we're going to try to get to the bottom of how these takes on his character could be so vastly different. And while we explore that, we're also going to take a look at his wild life and the last stand that's been so romanticized over the years. But to really understand Ned's story, first you need to know a little bit about bushrangers. And if you're not Australian, it probably doesn't really have any context for you. Right, but bushrangers were basically bandits or highwaymen who specialized in robbing or bailing up, as it was called, stagecoaches, banks, and small settlements. Yeah, we'll try to use the the authentic lingo in this. Whenever we can. So what they did was sort of in the same vein as the legendary English highway robbers. So they're often compared to the likes of Dick Turpin. Also, sometimes you'll see comparisons to the American Wild West, people like Jesse James. But the bushranging industry actually went for longer than America's Wild West period. The main period of Australia's bushranging spanned about 100 years from the guy who's considered the first bushranger, Black Caesar, to Ned Kelly's gang in 1880. Yeah, and there were also more bush- Bushrangers per capita in Australia than there were outlaws in America. About 6,000 bushrangers during that period that we mentioned. And a lot of these bushrangers were really just ruthless killers. But sometimes they've been glorified and characterized as Robin Hood type folk heroes, mainly because of the actions of a few specific bushrangers, such as Edward Teddy the Jewboy Davis, who supposedly treated his victims humanely and shared what he stole 
with the poor. And we see this idea in the Kelly story, too. There's certainly a Robin Hood element to it. So to set up the period that this story takes in a little bit better, we should explain that within that 100-year period of bushranging, there were two sort of sub-periods. From about 1789 to the 1850s, bushrangers were mostly escaped convicts. But from the 1850s to 1880 or so, most bushrangers were free settlers who'd broken the law. And Ned Kelly definitely fell into that latter camp. Yeah, so Ned Kelly was born in June 1855 in the state of Victoria, Australia. And he was the first son of Irish parents. Ellen and James called Red Kelly. And his dad had somewhat of a criminal background himself. He had been transported from Ireland to Australia for stealing. And Ned grew up in this clan-like atmosphere of Irish-Australian families in this area. And according to an article by Graham Seal in History Today... They were called free selectors, so basically poor people who were allowed by the government to cultivate tracts of land for a small amount of rent. Many of these free selectors, Ned Kelly's family certainly included, made their living off of a combination of, quote, legal pastoral activities and illegal activities, such as stock stealing, which in Australia was known as duffing. And this would consequently get them into trouble with the law now and then. Yeah, and incidentally, many feel that it's this association with an economically and politically disadvantaged social group that helped characterize bushrangers like Ned as, quote, poor man's heroes. So that kind of sets up the villain versus hero Yeah, the Robin Hood motif. Yeah, right. So Ned had several run-ins with the law while he was growing up. By age 16, he'd already served one jail sentence, and that year he was convicted of receiving a stolen horse and had to serve another three-year jail sentence. By the time he got out in February 1874, Seal says he had transformed into a hard, bitter man. Yeah, still, though, he managed to stay out of trouble for a few years, three years, And then in September 1877, he was arrested for public drunkenness and got into this fight with four policemen while he was trying to escape. Seven months later, though, things really elevated to another level. One of the policemen who had been involved in that fight, Constable Fitzpatrick, came to the Kelly home, not coming after Ned, but to arrest Ned's brother Dan for horse stealing. And what happened next is up for debate. Yeah, Fitzpatrick claimed that he was assaulted by the Kellys, including the mom, Ellen. She got in on the fight, too. But the Kellys claim that Fitzpatrick tried to molest one of the daughters, one of Ned Kelly's sisters, basically. And the assault, which included a shot to the wrist, was kind of a self-defense thing. So the judge was prone to side with Fitzpatrick. He reviewed the case six months later, and he sentenced Ellen to three years in jail for her role in this in this fight. And then also said that he would have given Ned and Dan 15 years each, but... They had disappeared. Yeah, Ned and Dan had fled into the Wombat Ranges and set up camp in the hills, which they knew well. Two of their friends, Steve Hart and Joe Byrne, joined them there. In October 1878, though, a team of four policemen were sent to track this new Kelly gang, as they were known, down where they were camping out. Then, on October 26th, the police and the Kelly gang had a confrontation at Stringybark Creek. In some sources, you'll see that it was a police raid on the Kelly camp, and others you see that the Kellys actually ambushed and bailed up or robbed the police. Regardless of how the confrontation came about, a gunfight ensued, and the three policemen were killed. One, McIntyre, escaped to tell the tale back in Melbourne. 
And after that, I mean, this was really a turning point for them. After that, the government declared the four Kelly gang members outlaws and put a high price on their heads. They even passed something called the Outlawry Act. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, it's really but hopefully so. It's kind say. of a strange word, but this law basically said that the rights and the property of the outlaws are forfeit, and any citizen can kill them on sight. Sympathizers, and they had many at the time, could also be imprisoned and lose all of their belongings as well. Okay, so you'd think after this new act, the Kelly gang would have sort of tried to play it cool. You know, you might have your friends turn into enemies suddenly if there's a reward or your friends could get into trouble for for sympathizing with you. But it didn't cause the Kelly gang to lay low at all. Less than six weeks later, on December 10th, 1878, they raided the town of Euroa and robbed the bank and stole food from the shops in the town. Of course, they made off with a lot of gold and cash, 2,000 pounds worth. But Ned also stole deeds and mortgages held in the bank safe. And this is something that really endeared him to the struggling free selectors in Victoria, to the poor people. They saw the banks as discriminating against poor Irish settlers in the area. This reminded me a little bit of of Bonnie and Clyde. People liked them for, for robbing banks. Yeah, once they got away, the Kelly gang divided up the loot between themselves, their families, and their sympathizers. So again, sharing with people who helped them out. Authorities increased the reward for the Kellys at this point from 2,000 pounds to 4,000. But this didn't have an effect on the loyalty of their supporters at all. They even wrote songs about it. So here's just a little bit from one here. Oh, Patty, dear, did you hear the news that's going round? On the head of bold Ned Kelly, they have placed a thousand pounds. For Steve Hart and Dan Kelly, five hundred more they'll give. But if the sum were doubled, sure, the Kelly boys would live. I wish we could set that to some music. I know. If only we knew what the tune was supposed to be. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, maybe some of y'all do. We're both thinking the same thing. Um, So, you know, obviously, if you have people writing folk ballads about you, you're pretty popular. And that loyalty really continued into their next job, which was a raid on Gerildery. And during that, they locked up police officers in their own cells and masqueraded around town in the police uniform. So, Pretty bold stuff. Yeah, and they did their usual. They held up banks and shops again, and they locked up the townspeople in the hotel. It wasn't so bad to be a hostage, though. As long as you weren't a policeman. As long as you weren't a policeman, right. Apparently, the Kelly gang treated everyone to drinks, and Ned made speeches. They made off with 2,000 pounds once again, and once again, they also burned mortgages. Ned also left a 10,000-word statement with a bank teller that came to be known as the Gerildery Letter. Now that letter only exists in a copy, but it's got some pretty interesting content. It catalogs complaints and grievances of Ned Kelly and his gang uh, against the government, the police, wealthy squatters. It basically just shows his whole point of view and why... Lays it all down. ...why people sympathize with him. So at this point, the Kelly gang was really riding high, but they were also kind of nervous because the police seemed to be getting too hot on their trail. They needed to shake them off somehow. So their last raid took place June 27, 1880, on a small town surrounding a rail station called Glen Rowan. But the raid was really about more than just getting loot this time. The night before, they killed a man named Aaron Sherritt, who was a one-time peer, but who had also been acting as a sort of double agent. So he was a friend of the Kelly gangs, but he was informing on them to the police. And so they had reason to kill him for, for that 
that fact, of course, but they also hoped that his murder would lure the bulk of the special district police force onto a train that would pass through Glen Rowan. So his murder would essentially act as a trap for the police. So banking on the fact that all the police would be on this train, taking this train, the gang had lifted the rails off to the side near a hilltop with the intent of derailing the train and killing all the police on board and then picking off whomever was left. Yeah, so after setting this up, they raided the town as usual, stole food and money, and locked up the locals in Glen Rowan's Jones Hotel, where they sang, danced, drank, and basically carried on with the crowd while they waited for the police to arrive. So it seemed like a pretty good plan, but Ned made a couple of major mistakes here. He told the hostages about his plans, for one, and then he let a few of them go home. One of them, a school teacher named Thomas Kernow, went to the track and warned the police by waving a lantern. So the train stopped just in time, and about 37 police got off and headed for the hotel. So when the Kelly gang heard the train stop, they knew the jig was up, and they had just one more move to pull out of their bag of tricks. A few months before the attack on Glen Rowan, plowshares and some cast iron started disappearing throughout the area, and it turns out that the gang had used it to create crude suits of armor for themselves. So a little bit about this armor, which has become famous over the years. It's one of the best known. Yeah, if you can easily look at pictures of this, and it's probably one of the best known things about Ned Kelly and the Kelly gang. This armor consisted of back and breastplates and an adjustable metal apron that protected the groin area of the wearer. And each suit, this is what I found really remarkable, each suit weighed 80 pounds. Only one of them, that was Ned's, had a helmet that had slits and a visor, and that itself weighed about 16 pounds. And he was the only one strong enough, supposedly, to wear the suit, the helmet, and still handle a gun at the same time. Yeah, it sounds like it would be quite cumbersome, but... Yeah, it doesn't look very comfortable if you do get a chance to check out these pictures. It's no, kind of like a broke-down Tin Man <laughs> Wizard of Oz suit. It does look like a, a really shabby Tin Man, and it looks like some pretty crucial areas are left vulnerable still, so maybe it's not quite worth it. Well, we're going to... It's funny you should mention you know, that, Sarah. We'll find out more about that. So the Bush Rangers put on this, this crude armor and stood outside the hotel waiting for the police, and, of course, a gun battle ensued, and civilians trying to get out of the hotel during the fight didn't want to get caught in the crossfire but the armor really didn't seem to do the gang that much good it was clunky of course and it caused painful bruising when it did stop a bullet it just was like a a sheet of cast iron hitting your chest which couldn't be very comfortable so perhaps not surprisingly Joe Byrne Dan Kelly and Steve Hart were all shot dead during that gunfight Ned Kelly was shot in the foot the arm and the thumb and several other places it seems he retreated into the bush and lost consciousness consciousness briefly. When he woke up, though, instead of escaping, he tried to attack the policemen, crashing out from behind them and firing at them the whole time. He fought them for about a half an hour, some sources say, uh, before they finally took him down by a shotgun blast to the legs. After that, he was taken to Melbourne, where he recovered from all 30 of his wounds and stood trial and was found guilty, sentenced to be hung, even though there were public protests and some people even campaigned to have a sentence reduced. Yeah, so Kelly was hanged on November 11th, 1880, and his last words were, such is life. But weirdly, he told 
Justice Barry. Who was the same judge who had sentenced his mom yeah, years so ago. Yeah, he probably already had a grudge against him. But he had told Justice Barry that he, Barry, would shortly follow him to the grave. And sure enough, Barry died of a heart attack just two weeks later. Yeah, and this must have just only added to the legend that's lived on through stories and songs. In fact, Australia's first feature-length film was 1906's The Story of the Kelly Gang. I wonder if there have been movies on Kelly since then, I'm sure. I'm sure there are. Um, I don't, unfortunately, have the names here, but I think there are many movies, books, um, stories, songs, as we've said. There are plenty of opportunities, including many biographies on Ned Kelly's life, to learn more about him. Well, I think it's time for a new movie, considering this lost, potentially rediscovered head, too. Yeah, well, I think we'll have to wait to see how that mystery unravels a little more before that story is completely fleshed out, but I think you might be right. But, you know, even if you're not an expert on Ned Kelly, you could sort of invoke him in speech. There's a saying, if someone says you're as game as Ned Kelly, that means that you're highly courageous, wicked brave, willing to tackle (laughs) big odds. Um, So you could pass this on. Yeah. It's like a nice thing to say to people. I hope the Australians say wicked brave. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you get from living in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> well, what can I say? Language seems to stick with us no matter where we are. Um, and I think that's a great place to transition into this listener mail that we have coming up. Yeah, so this listener mail is a Where's Waldo postcard. I think it's so cool. Uh, it, it's from Caitlin, and she wrote, Hi, Sarah and Dublina. I found your podcast a few months ago and fell in love. I've always loved history, and you guys make it come alive. I had a podcast idea, the Barefoot Mailman legend here in South Florida. Before Henry Flagler established a good railway system in Palm Beach, there was a mailman who walked everywhere to deliver the mail. Barefoot, of course. I don't know if there's enough information out there about him, but I've always found this story interesting. It is a strange story. I wonder if he he wore armor, too, perhaps. Armor and no shoes? <laughs> it doesn't sound very wise. No, it doesn't. It sounds like You a, could get a parasite. <laughs> or just a crushed foot from the weight <laughs> of your armor. But anyways, I really did like this Where's Waldo postcard. It was... Um, It's the Paris scene from, like, the original Where's Waldo book, and it kind of brought back old memories. I remember even a few years ago breaking out my old Where's Waldo book, and I knew where Waldo was on every page, like, right away. And I don't know if I just got better at at finding Waldo over the years, or if I... If it's somewhere locked in my brain, like, where Waldo is on each page. Hmm. All right. (laughs) Well, that's it for this edition of What Sarah Does on the Weekend. <laughs> if you have any wonderful postcards from for us from your various travels or just some insight to offer on any of our episodes, if you're an Australian and have extra Ned Kelly stories, I'm sure we've only begun to scratch the surface of we, his life. We do actually have a postcard of Ned Kelly's helmet. Yes, it's so cool. It's in my cubicle right now. We love to get mail. We love to get emails. You can send them to us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also look us up on Twitter at Missed in History or on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about trains and crime, we do have an article on how the great train robbery worked. You can look for it by searching for great train robbery on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. 
Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.